Nintendo Audio. A quick thanks before we start the show. Filmmaking Confidential The Book is now an Amazon.com and Audible.com bestseller. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it and for your support. If you haven't yet picked it up and you want to learn my filmmaking secrets, Filmmaking Confidential is for you. It's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. Order by visiting Audible or Amazon. To find out more, check out FilmmakingConfidential.com and SteveBalderson.com. Thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. In this podcast, we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Today's guest is poet and writer, publisher, Iris Berry. Iris Berry is the co-founder of Punk Hostage Press. She is the author and editor of several books and has a vast fan base for her unique voice and formidable writing style. She's a Los Angeles pop culture historian, actress, and musician. She's appeared in numerous films, TV commercials, documentaries, and iconic rock videos. In 2009, she received her second Certificate of Merit Award from the City of Los Angeles for her contribution as a Los Angeles writer and for her extensive charity work. Iris continues to champion and advocate for original voices. I grew up in a place called Pacoima. Pacoima was was, um, a lot of gangs, a lot of car clubs. So I had three older brothers and they were all in gangs and car clubs. And our house was like, there was no parental supervision. So my brothers, and they looked like they they all dressed alike, like Pendleton's, Levi's cuffed and creased. You know, they looked like they walked out of an, uh, an, an issue of Lowrider magazine. And they were all just so handsome. You know, like that James Dean kind of lowrider hybrid because they were white. And so um, they turned our house into like a chop shop. There was a pool table in the garage and there was just cars everywhere being chopped and lowered and tinted and glass packed and you know, in motorcycles. It was just total dude house. And it was a lot of fun as a kid, like for me, I was like the only girl and it was um like I said, no parental supervision. So there was no one saying you can't do this or you need to do that. And that was amazing for me as, as a creative person. And I didn't know it. Well, I don't even know what that meant, but I was a creative person. And um, so there was a lot of freedom for that, like a lot of freedom of the spirit. But at the same time, I was, you can't help when, with all that kind of freedom, you can't be free and not lost at the same time. So I was a little lost and I, kind of didn't feel like I fit and didn't feel like I fit in like because I was creative and so when my oldest brother went to now mind you there was a lot of gang violence and I saw at 15 I saw my brother's best friend get stabbed in the heart and die and you know we were just at a party and he accidentally knocked over this biker's one at like a hell's angels motorcycle and I just happened to be walking outside and um I just Robert stalked and accidentally knocked over the spiker's motorcycle and mike his brother stopped and walks up and he's like hey you guys let's um let's cool it before something stupid happens and the biker pulled out a knife and stabbed mike in the heart and i there was no one else around i just happened to be standing there don't ask me why i was 15 and 
you know, it was, they grabbed the biker, like all the guys in my brother's gang grabbed the biker and they beat him beyond recognition under a streetlight. And I just kept running and running. And I found my boyfriend who was a brother of one of my brother's friends. Um, and I said, you know, Mike's dead. And he was like, you're imagining this. I'm like, no, I'm not. And so I, there was just that, that element that I knew that I didn't want to, like my friends were growing up and going out with guys, you know, I just didn't see a future in this. And before any of that happened, my oldest brother, Marty was in the Vietnam war and he was stationed in Nuremberg, Germany. And he would send stuff home. Like he sent first, he sent home like a recorder. Okay. This is 19, uh, 1968 okay and I was like 10 and he sent home like a recorder and no one else I just grabbed it and started like I would start interviewing people with it on the and making up these crazy fake shows like let's make a crappy deal and I made everyone be characters like my mom you're gonna be Marilyn Monroe and you know like everyone I made everyone do Howard Cosell voices and then and I also had a next door neighbor I'll, I'll leave her name out but she she had like nine personalities and I used to protect her like I would walk her to school because people would make fun of her and I used to just try to protect her and but and I so I didn't really I knew that she you know had mental health issues and when I had my tape recorder I decided that I was going to tape all her nine personalities like I didn't see anything wrong with that like I was just interested and her mom found out about it and came over and said you know your daughter's not ever allowed to around my kids again like like I felt bad but I honestly didn't know that what I was doing was wrong, but that was just, I'm just basically trying to paint a picture of who I was. I was already me then, you know, interested yeah. in people and filming people. So then my brother, Marty sends home a movie camera, which I grabbed right away. And I started making movies with everybody on the block and like, mom, you get in the trunk and then we'll stop the camera. And then Diane, you get in and you get out. So it looks like my mom got in and died. Like I was just, or you walk behind a tree and then mom comes out instead of dying. Like I was just, having a blast because with all those things thank god my brother marty sent this i had a creative outlet in the middle of this chaos of a life like uh, this is how chaotic it was i was four and my mom and i had gone to the broadway and she didn't have a car then so we took a cab there and we took a cab home and you know remember my brothers were making you know doing mechanical stuff with the garage and cars and stuff so they were working i guess with some flammable stuff and we got home in the cab and the house was on fire and my mom being like the tough brooklyn woman beauty that she was she said to the cab driver keep driving like let's just get out of here she was so over it you know like but she had like she just you know she keep driving and you know that's something that me and my family me and my brothers laugh about now these creative elements gave me that kind of freedom. And I, you know, I didn't really think about it. It was just there, it was there and it was an outlet. And so when I was about 16, I knew that if I didn't get out, I was like the weirdo, you know, everyone else was, you know, getting, I mean, I was drinking and getting high, but I was all, I also had other things that I wanted to do other interests creatively and that no one else there did. And I just knew that I needed to get out and Hollywood was like right over the hill. And so when I was old enough, I just started taking the bus over the hill to Hollywood Boulevard. And it was amazing. Like I was, I think I was like 15 the first time I did it. And there was trannies everywhere and they took me under their wing and I got to hang out with them. And we went up to Houdini's mansion, you know, that was no longer there, but I just started meeting all these people. Then by the time I was 17, there was this biker bar down the street off of like Van between Van Nuys Boulevard and um, 
Woodman right off of Oxnard. It was called the Rock Corporation. I got it, and I, a fake ID out of the free press, which was this paper that was a great paper. It was owned by Art Kunkin, which basically it stopped. It helped end the Vietnam War. Like it was the free press was the first of its, you know, independent newspaper. I got my fake ID and I would go to the Rock Corporation and I even got a job working there during the day. And it was like owned by this, you know, a biker and the other a silent partner was, his name was Benji Siegel and he drove like a Lincoln Town car. And he, you know, the word on the street was that he was Bugsy Siegel's illegitimate son. And he had like a bullet hole scar in his head, which he had a speech impediment because he'd been shot in the head at some point. They all took me under their wing. I worked there in the office during the day. And then at night I used to hang out and like, there was this little band that played every Saturday night called Van Halen and they had a residency there. Yeah. They weren't famous at all. But then like during the week, because punk rock was starting to happen, I think it was about like 76, I was 17. They started having punk shows and that's where I met everybody. That's where I met Pleasant and Trudy and the Go-Go's and, you know, X played and just all these bands. And I, fell in love with it and my friends were like what are you doing like I totally like I remember seeing like Pleasant and uh, Belinda and Margo and Kathy Valentine and Trudy and Helen Killer they were all in the bathroom and they were wearing like black lipstick now this is the 70s you know I was still wearing dittos and you know lip gloss and you know just <laughs> for. and I walked in the bathroom and I saw them and I go why do you guys want to make yourselves look ugly and they were like no, it's beautiful. And I heard that. And they they took me under their wing and we became friends. And I started, you know, that was my introduction to punk rock. And I started hanging out with them. And then I started going, you know, I was already going to Hollywood, but then I, you know, was going to see punk shows. Do you remember your first punk show? Well, it was at the Rock Corporation. So I'm thinking, I think it was X, it was the Simple Tones, it was the Flyboys and the Go-Go's. But just apparently Joe Strummer from The Clash was there to see the bands. Like, it was like that, you know, even though it wasn't like now we know The Clash and and none of them knew how to play their instruments, which was what I fell in love with, like, because they were learning on stage. And I saw this freedom, you know, and I got it. You know, it was the DIY thing before I even knew that there was a term. The Hollywood punk thing was all based like in art, right? Like mm-hmm. it was, you know, a lot of a lot of people from, you know, art school was migrating. Like it was this this new exciting thing. And it was rebelling against Arena Rock and Led Zeppelin and like all those big like, you know, because in order to have a, a record, then you had to have a record deal and you had to have a record company paying for your time in the studio and it was thousands of dollars and these punk bands were just doing it on their own but if there's a photo of you from that time or you had a you got to make a recording it was because you were a person of interest like no one had a camera but someone who'd studied photography and wanted to be a professional photographer like it's now ed culver and it's you know gary leonard like we didn't, I didn't have a camera. I didn't have a phone. We didn't have phone cameras. We didn't. So if there is a photo of people from that time, it's because they're a person of interest. And like my dear friend, who's no longer with us, Jules Bates, he was a great photographer. And he, he went down in the mask and he took all these pictures of them in the mask. And all that was so freeing. No one had to give you permission to be in a band or to become something or something creative. We, it's like, you know, it's like what you do now. It's what me and Pleasant still do. So it was 
this beautiful freedom of not waiting around for someone to tell you, you can do these things. So when I was 19, my mom came, maybe I was 18, 18 or 19, my mom came home from Las Vegas. She married her boyfriend. She was like, I'm home and I'm married. And God bless her. She was, she raised four kids on her own. You know what I mean? Like she was done and she just wanted to live her life. And she'd been with her boyfriend for a long time. My stepdad, and she was like, I'm married. I'm out of here. I was like, what do you mean you're out of here? Like, what do you mean? She goes, well, you can keep the apartment. And I'm like, with what job? Like, she was like a, a, a teenager. Like, I, at the time, I was really upset, but I get it. So I moved in with my first punk rock boyfriend. We moved in down, like, off of Sunset. It was on, it was Palm Avenue. It was right behind, like, where the Viper Room is now, right off the Sunset Strip. And our next door neighbor my 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 boyfriend and I, his name was Bob Jones, and he was he looked like he was in the Sex Pistols. He was super cute, and you know he was my first punk rock boyfriend. And our next door neighbor was a guy by the name of Blackie Dammit, and that's Anthony Kiedis's dad. And Anthony would come visit him. He was like fourteen and fifteen. Like that was the first time Anthony and I lived next door to each other. And Hollywood was amazing then. It was like especially West Hollywood. It had this magic in the air. And I don't know if it was because, and it's still there, that magic. I don't know if it was because it was all of the souls and the spirits of like, you know, decades of Hollywood and the Sunset Strip and, you know, the many incarnations that had taken on and just all that creativity. But it, it had a magic in the air. It was amazing. And um, so we were right off of, you know, right by the whiskey and every, um, you know, the whiskey was having punk shows. So a lot of places were having punk shows, but the record companies really weren't, um, they just couldn't figure it out. They like Blondie was got a record deal and, you know, Patty Smith. And then, you know, they could take chances on that. What they called, I, they, I think they called it new wave, you know, mm-hmm. even though Blondie probably would have never called themselves that, but so there was punk shows and I was still meeting more punk rockers. And then, um, we moved one street over to San Vicente, which is, it was about a cigarette walk from the whiskey. Like every night at five, I would walk up to the whiskey and I'd go in the side door with all the bands for soundcheck and I would just stay, you know, like I saw so many great bands. I saw The Clash. I saw Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. I saw, you know, The Police. Um, I saw, uh, I went out with Joe Strummer. Like one night I went, you know, and I just started meeting everybody. And down the street from there was a place called the Tropicana Motel. Are you familiar with the Tropicana? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it had <clears throat> Duke's Duke's coffee shop was at the bottom and it was family style. So everyone sat at the same tables and you would go in there and like you'd see Muhammad Ali sitting at a table or Andy Warhol or William Burroughs or um, Andy Kaufman and Lita Ford, like everybody and all the punk rockers and Tom Waits lived in the back and Chucky Weiss and George, Thur- like people would come to, stay there to do shows and they just end up living there. Like the cramps came into town. They end up staying for a month or two, the dead boys, you know, like it was just that place. Like in the lobby, there was a sign, one rule, no hair dying. That was it. Like that was the only rule. The pool was painted black. Okay. And it had AstroTurf everywhere. It was wild. You could just go door to door to door. And like the sign, it said, you know, $6 a night. And then when they changed the price to nine, they just flipped the six over. It was amazing. Like, I don't think you could do that now. I don't think places like that can exist. It was 
before corporate America really kicked in, you know, where Hollywood and West Hollywood and Los Angeles, there was still a lot of mom and pop businesses. And the thing about the Tropicana, it was, it started out, I want to say in the fifties, it was a haven for character actors because they could afford it. And it used to have like photos of the character actors in the lobby. And then, you know, the sixties came and, you know, the doors. And so Jim Morrison would stay there. And I think in the fifties, Sandy Koufax owned it. It was called Sandy Koufax's Tropicana Motel. Like everything, the motel changed with the time. So, you know, then punk rock came and it was just a punk rock haven. Like there was the hotel in the front, all the, you know, regular rooms or motel rooms. And then there was an alley in the back where you could park, but there was these bungalows. Tom Waits lived in a bungalow for five years. And so did Chucky Weiss. And they used to work at the at the uh, Troubadour, which was down the street. And there was a train that used to go in, down the street, down Santa Monica Boulevard, like a train. And they, when they had to go to work, they would jump on the train in front of the Tropicana and they'd get off at the Troubadour. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it was just a very charming time. And I was free and lost all at the same time, just trying to figure it out. With all that in front of me, it was amazing. Iris Berry. Another fantastic guest is Her Royal Highness, the Princess of Hollywood, Pleasant Gaiman. And then I also, one time, brought Kurt Cobain to a, a Mexican tranny bar, and he was wearing pajamas, and no one knew it was him because it was a Mexican drag bar, you know? <laughs> you can hear my full interview with Her Highness at filmmakingconfidential.com in our archives or by subscribing for free to this podcast. We'll be right back with Iris Berry. Stay with us. Now, back to our conversation with Iris Berry. When you're surrounded by so many creative people, it's very inspiring. You know, it's like, oh, I, I want to do that. I like what they're doing. If they can do that, I can do it kind of thing. First of all, I was super heartbroken about the way my mom left. And that was, you know, I kind of had to get over that first. And I was finding drugs and alcohol and the relationship with uh, my first punk rock boyfriend. He left me for, <laughs> he left me like he was a house painter and he was painting Neil Young's house. And Neil Young didn't live there, but his former wife and son lived there, Carrie Snodgrass. And so Bob was there painting the house and Carrie had hooked up with a bunch of the punk rockers and made friends and it was like a party place. And so he left me for Carrie. He hadn't come home all night. And we lived in this apartment above a garage and there was a house in front of us. There was like uh, this biker brother and sister young biker. He wasn't a real biker, but he had like, he would build his Harley inside the house. And I don't know what happened, but the, all of a sudden I, I'm, I'm tossing and turning, wondering where Bob is. And I hear the cops outside. He's like, Iris, tell him I'm a good guy. Tell him a good guy. And I'm like, he really is a good guy. I don't know what happened, but, and as they were getting him in the police car, they looked up at him and they said, Oh, by the way, John Lennon was just shot and killed in New York city. Yeah, it was one of those nights that you just never forget. Like my boyfriend didn't come home for the first time. You know, just like my I was watching my world and the world fall apart all at the same time. He moved in with Carrie and I was kind of living on the streets with some punk rock plant friends. I stayed at this place called the Slab Lab, which was it was an underground art studio and a bunch of punk rockers lived there. Uh, rock bottom from the spies, just, you know, just 
it was another crash. It was my first crash pad. Let's just put it that way. I was working temp at um, CBS studios. Like I was doing temp jobs. A girl that I work with was in a band and she's all, I want you to come see our rehearsal. And she was kind of snotty. Like she was, that was a thing. I mean, I don't mean to offend anybody, but the, the punk rockers then had this arrogance about them. And I don't, I mean, she wasn't really part of that scene, but she was sort of took on that arrogance and like, I was shocked that she wasn't inviting me over. And I was looking for a place, like a real place to live. Like I was staying with hookers. I was staying with, you know, with punkers. I was, you know, just trying to figure it out. And um, because there was no home to go back to, my mom had moved out and with her husband. And so anyway, Stephanie invites me over on Highland and Third. It was this big pink mansion, dilapidating, right? And I go to see... um, their band rehearse and turns out that the guy that owned the house, there was like no furniture in the house, which is a whole other story. It was all in the backyard. Like all these, you would have died. All these beautiful <laughs> antiques from like the forties, the, all this, I mean, I bunch of clothes the mother had that happened to fit me like in this one room off the side of the laundry room. Like the house was completely empty except musical equipment. It was this beautiful two-story Spanish villa house. And as I was leaving the rehearsal, and I write about this in The Daughters of Bastards, the story is called The Pink Mansion. And as I was leaving, Michael, the owner of the house, sweet guy, he said, you know, do you know anyone who needs a room? I'm renting rooms out. I was like, I do. And so I moved in there, which was like a finally a stable place to live. And really for the first time on my own, because when I first moved out, I was with Bob. Turns out Bob lived at Carrie's house, like half a mile away. And we had, we had had a cat named Cram, this white cat. And she found me. She would keep running away from his house to my house. Like she sniffed me out. I'm not really sure how that worked out, but yeah, it was amazing. So that was kind of really the beginning of me being on my own and figuring out like that I wanted to be a writer and, you know, Mitchell Schneider, who's, you know, this amazing, has this amazing publicist company and he's an amazing publicist. He was, he was in the band. And he and I became friends and he was like writing songs and we were trying to be a band. He was trying to help me, but I didn't really have enough esteem then, you know, I was still kind of broken and trying to figure Mm -hmm. it out. But eventually, you know, I, uh, you know, started meeting people and finding my people and the punk scene was flourishing and started being in bands and, you know, eventually ran it. And Pleasant and I would totally always just bump into each other. Like, it was, I think it was 1980 or 81. I was driving to go get my car washed. It was totally bashed in. It was like a, one of those $100 cars. I was crossing Hollywood Boulevard and Pleasant. It was Whitley and Hollywood and Pleasant was crossing the street. And she's like, hey. And I go, hey. She goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm going to get my car washed. And she looks at the car. And she goes, why? Because <laughs> it was such a wreck. So she gets in the car. We go to the car wash. And that was kind of the beginning because we were neighbors because Disgrace Line was, I was on one side of Hollywood Boulevard. She was on the other. And so that was sort of the beginning of our friendship. And then I remember one day I was going to do this poetry reading. Like I was trying to, you know, read my stuff out loud. And there was like an open reading and it was on Santa Monica Boulevard. And I was sort of walking in and Pleasant just had me walking around the corner. I mean, no one really walked in LA, especially then, because it was just like this spread out desert. And Pleasant sort of turns the corner and she's like, hey. And I was like, hey. She goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm going to go do this poetry reading. I, you want to come with me? She goes, yeah. And I said, but it doesn't start for a while. So there was a liquor store there. 
So we got a bottle of wine and we sat on the curb and we just got so plowed talking about like our romantic troubles. I never made it into the poetry reading of it. We just, that's where we really, really bonded and we became super close. And then eventually when a room opened up in Disgraceland, I grabbed it. So was she, I mean, was she already there or would she go with you? She was already there. She'd gotten Disgraceland, I believe with Anne McLean and Kid Congo and Lisa Curlin. Like she'd had, and I remember walking by Disgraceland seeing everyone on the porch, but I didn't know it. Like I didn't see Pleasant. I, you know, it was just Hollywood was, it was pretty beautiful. You, you know, walking around Hollywood Boulevard was lovely at that time. Cause there was still a lot of old remnants from like the twenties and the thirties, you know, a lot of old places that hadn't been torn down yet. So, and then a lot of like the magic store and the, the wig shop and, you know, just where you could get really cool shoes and clothes. It was, it was pretty great. So eventually I moved into Disgraceland and that's when I started being in bands. i had had a different boyfriend at that point who's now a famous actor in Paris, but, you know, I still didn't know how to separate my love life with my creative life. I didn't know how to do that. I was still just trying to figure the balance out. So when I broke up with him, Pleasant's like, you should move into Disgraceland. She was like, he's kind of like, you know, he's European and he just thinks differently about women and, you know, like more of a possession and clearly you want to do other stuff. So I moved into Disgraceland and that's really when I had a lot of freedom and Pleasant and I were super close and we were both creating together, you know, that's, we were writing and we were making these chapbooks. And then we, because from the chapbooks, um, someone saw some of our writing and wanted to put it to music and it was, everything was so organic, you know, they put that to music and then we became the Ringling Sisters and I was already in the Lame Flames and she'd already started, you know, she was doing the Screaming Sirens and they were touring and the house was just a blast, you know, like people would come in to do play shows and they'd stay on our couch and then they'd leave a month later, you know, like it was, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun, you know, we'd wake up, roll out of bed, hungover get rid of our hangover, write songs, go to rehearsal, do shows, come back, bring the club back with us, have parties. Pleasant and I were both working at the Cafe de Grand. I call it like a punk rock Mayberry because we walked everywhere or cabbed everywhere and it was a village and we were all, you know, doing what we wanted. It was pretty great. That's amazing. Right? Um, totally. I mean, that's so funny as you're describing it because I am a proud member of the No Car Club and Love it. You can do that today, in Hollywood. You can. I mean, where I am based, I mean, I, I go to extremes. I mean, I have walked all the way to Doheny, which is, it's people a walk. don't. <laughs> it yeah. is a walk. It's a but there, yeah, it's a commitment. And it doesn't feel like it's not like walking in New York. Mm -mm. Like there's stretches of kind of nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, but it, and it changes. It's four blocks of this and then four blocks of something else. and. Right. The one thing that I've always loved about it is that you come across something that you would otherwise be moving so quickly past that you wouldn't see it. Right. You, know? and you can stop and just look at it, you know? Yeah. And, and what is this place? You know, have and, you ever taken Hollywood Boulevard up to like Fairfax? Have you ever walked that? It's amazing. Cause it's like Hollywood Boulevard and then it's residential and it's yeah. apartments and then it's these beautiful homes. Right. Yeah. And then you've, you're, and then it takes you to the good part of sunset. And because right. sunset up until that point is kind of, you know, just stretched out, not 
not iconic. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm not a fan of sunset walking until you get there. Until you get right, right. past Fairfax. Yeah, um, right. Exactly. There was this sex shop. You know, there were sex shops everywhere, and it was called the Garden of Eden, and it was past like if from your house, if you go past, you know, Grandma's Chinese Theater, it was past on the left, and me and my friend go in there and. We're 15 and it's like, it's got like, it's two stories. So you walk in and there's all these fun sex toys. And then there's a staircase that goes upstairs to another level, probably XXXXX rated. But, you know, it's in the staircases in the store. And so me and my friend were just goofing around and uh, the sales guy, there was two sales. It was a woman and a man and they he, they both come up to us and go, you're not going to believe this. And I was like, we're like, what? And like Hugh Hefner's coming in with Barbie Benton. And we're like, oh my God, you know, and this like kind of Lucy fascinating. I love Lucy fascination. So in my, so in my kooky head, I go upstairs and I wait for them to come in and I make this entrance down the stairs. Like, like, I don't know what's going on, but it, like, I'm just, you know, walking down the stairs. And apparently it worked and me and my friend were, you know, and I forgot about it, but then the sales guy said, look, and it was a card from his manager. They want to meet you. And they, and I was like, okay. So I wasn't, you know, the manager came up, I forget his name, but he introduced me to Hugh and Barbie and, and they invited me to the mansion. Yeah. And I, and I was just like, Ugh. and I went home and told my mom, and she begged me to go. I was like, no way, mom. You know, like, ew. So, but that was Hollywood then. It was, right. it was every cliche. It was real. Yeah. I want to talk about on separate occasions, you as a writer. Okay. When did you know you had a voice? Mm, this is good. Thank you for reminding me. Well, like I said, I grew up in a crazy house, right? Like it was just, I was a latchkey kid in the middle of a circus, basically. You know, sometimes I had a babysitter. I love my babysitter, Lisa. She's still alive and we still laugh about, you know, just the crazy stuff. Like one night we were there and, you know, the Saturday night my mom was out and we were eating, you know, ruffles, potato chips and drinking tap cola. Like that was the thing. And my brothers, you know, were doing their thing and their car clubs and their gangs and all of a sudden we hear gunshots and guys running in the backyard and like we're down on the ground behind the couch, like gunshots. Like, and this was this like late sixties, early seventies. Like people didn't have guns then like they do now, but at the same time, it was kind of like the neighborhood. Like I didn't, we didn't really blink, but it was just, you know, part of the deal. But anyway, chaotic and fun, like fun, like, pool guys playing pool and all these guys were really cute mind you like they were at least five years older than me and then older but they were all really charismatic and cute and you know like bad boys and all that you know my brothers my mom would leave my brothers and my brothers would leave me with them and you know they teach me how to play poker well actually my grandma taught me how to play poker my brooklyn grandma <laughs> and Amazing. she'd always win she'd always win she'd always take my money at poker yeah like my grandma, my mom's mom, she would always be like, Iris, never give a man money. And I'd be like, Grandma, I'm seven. <laughs> really? Yeah, right. 
and you know, but they grew up in the and you know they grew up in that time in Brooklyn, you know. So at the age of seven, because again, no parental guidance. My brothers were all over the place, and you know, picking on me, and dad's calling you, mom's calling you, just you know, because they were they hung out together, and I was so much younger than them. Like my oldest brother's 13 years older than me. The middle brother's eight years older than me. And then my other brother, Don is five years older, but there was a big gap and they'd already been a family. I was part of a different era in our family, like the era where the parents weren't around. So they'd already bonded. But anyway, at the age of seven, um, when anytime something would go weird or my brothers would, (laughs) okay. One more story defining that. When I was five, my mom got me my first pair of metal skates, you know, like real skates. And my brothers, they were kind of bully. They were bullyish, like, you know, like, and I think they were, you know, upset about the divorce. And my oldest, my, no, my youngest brother, when he's five years older than me, Don, he would come in my bedroom every day with one of my toys. And he would just go see this and he'd smash it and leave like every day. And I'd go, you know, I try to get my mom but she was too busy trying to like, no one was listening. And so you had to sort of fend for yourself. So I, I guess I had this, you know, like, I'm going to, I'll show you. And, Cause you had to be, when you're a girl with three older brothers, you have to be tough, kind of tougher than them and a little bit more um, ruthless. And so, I mean, I, I didn't plan this, but so my mom gets me on my skates. It's a Sunday. Kids are skateboarding. It's summer. I'm on my grandma getting Chinese food. We do Chinese food every Sunday. My brother, I had a knot in my skate. It was like my first day with him. And he comes up and he's like, do you want my help with that? And I go, no. And I picked up the skate and I threw it in his face and knocked his front tooth out. And so my mom came home and she thought the house was like, she thought somebody was dying. She said, what's going on in here? And so she took my skates away. She put them on the fridge. She's like, you can't have those for a month. I got those skates back in two hours. Like I just worked her. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm getting my skates. You know, there was, it was kind of just lawless there. So anyway, by the time I was seven, I would go when something like that would go on, I'd go in my room and write, I'd write about it, but it wasn't like serious. It was just like, I'd write, you know, a poem called my mean brothers or, you know, the TV set won't work or like, whatever, like, you know, like it was, it was a kid, you know, it wasn't like I was writing my memoirs. So by the time I was about 10, my mom found it all. And she typed it up and she said, cause it's all, I didn't know what I, I mean, I didn't know that I was being creative. I didn't know I was, it was, it was like a knee jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. And so she typed it all up and she said, I guess her and my stepdad, he wasn't my stepdad yet, but they got together with my, um, my teacher and they came back to me and they said, look, if you write 50 more, we can get you published as a young writer. Well, I didn't write again for another seven years or whatever like i i was just like no this is mine like i didn't that you know like then i got like i'm an art you know i didn't say i'm an artist but it felt like such an infringement on something that was really mine you know and in a house like that you don't have anything that was yours and but it was just the way i reacted like i tried to i tried it but i couldn't do like i couldn't write like that it was just something that i did naturally and not for an audience, you know, mm-hmm. like it was a big kind of this, it was just, it didn't go with my flow. Like I wasn't ready for that. I don't know that I ever was. I mean, I am now, 
But so I didn't write again until I moved, kind of moved out. And then I started writing again on my own. So that's where it began. My love. Oh, interesting. For it. But you knew you, you had found, had you found your voice or was it, was it? It was a different voice. A different matter voice. Of fact, I did Cause I was just rhyming. Right. And I knew I wasn't really satisfied with that. And I tried creative writing and my, you know, I just, I didn't really like, I couldn't, I couldn't find my voice. And then when I was about 19, when I was living in West Hollywood, it was a really hot summer day and I just wanted some air conditioning. And there was the West Hollywood library down the street. So I went over there and I just thought, when I get published as a writer, where are my books going to, who am I going to be next to on the shelf? And I went into like, you know, the poetry section and I found this guy named Bukowski and this other guy named Baudelaire. And I checked their books out and I fell in love with, like, I read Bukowski and it's like, I learned that I didn't have to rhyme. Like he mm. didn't. And then I read Baudelaire and he's just amazing. Charles Baudelaire. And I, I mean, I never returned those books. I still have them. And I feel terrible about it. Like I'm sure I owe thousands of dollars to the West Hollywood library. But anyway, that's, that's how I found my voice was, cool. you know, through Bukowski and just other writers that I admired. And then a lot of writers, you know, that I was around, but, you know, like Pleasant was a great writer. She was already, you know, she'd gone to like schools and she already had her voice and she, together we wrote, you know, we would inspire each other and we had both had the same sense of humor and, you know, just like, and I started seeing Dave Alvin, Dave Alvin and I were in a relationship and, I'd kept this diary, like it was just, this, but it wasn't a diary. It was like, I'd cut pictures out. I put them in there and I'd write little poems and pleasantly just read it out loud to whoever at the house. Cause she was amused by it. And then Dave Alvin saw it and they both were like, yeah, can you believe they're both? So Dave was, came out with a book, um, Nana Big Joe on the 4th of July. And, um, and he had a book release. And so he put me in pleasant on, like we opened for him at the Lhasa club because of him because of Pleasant, they kind of, they pushed me out of my room, you know, with my writing. And that's where it really began. Like when I started really, like I felt like I'd found my voice at that point. Coming up, Iris reads from All That Shines Under the Hollywood Sign and tells us fun stories about Van Halen, Dave Lee Roth, and Prince. You'll want to hear this. Stay with us. Now, back to our conversation with Iris Berry. I'll read from All That Shines. Well, there's two. I mean, I have newer, newer, but um, I actually, ooh, I have a great idea. Okay, All That Shines. Here we go. So I'm just going to read you the intro to All That Shines. Scott Iker did the artwork. Yeah. He's amazing, and he did the cover. Um, okay, so standing directly in front of the Hollywood sign, I can feel its majestic pull. All nine letters, each one 40 feet tall and 30 feet wide. Built in 1923, an 18-month ad campaign that's lasted 96 years and counting. It's taken on a life of its own, promising many things to many people. All I've ever wanted from it is to just sit there and look good, and it's never let me down. Okay, and then I will read 
Thank you, Henry Mancini. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I love this one. I mean, I, and just so you know, and this pretty much explains my relationship with writing. I, it was, you know, it was early two thousands and I was sometimes, you know, I'm prone to depression, you know, and creativity has always pulled me out of it. Like I creativity for me now prone to depression. I shouldn't say that, but I've, I've had it in various points in my life. And, um, as a matter of fact, this was the early 2000s and I was in such a, like a deep, like it was like a week long, maybe two weeks. And I, it was like a flu, like an emotional flu. I couldn't get out of it. And I never, I didn't have it again like that since I did this, which was, you know, a few months back in November. And that's why I did it. Cause I'd remembered this. So the, and the, the story of this, the Henry Mancini, my friend and I were, um, doing what is it you know aol messenger this is you know like uh-huh. you dial up and we would just he was in um he was in oklahoma to, uh yeah and we were just he was an old friend from hollywood and he sends me this instant message that says so what's your top 10 cds that you're listening to and i was like shit i haven't listened to anything i feel totally embarrassed like so i walked over to the cd player again showing me the time period and I just grabbed the first thing that was on top and I put it in. It was Henry Mancini's Shadow of Your Smile. And the first few notes were so beautiful. Like it just lifted my depression, I swear. And I just stood there and went, ah, oh, thank you, Henry Mancini. And I just thought I need to write him a thank you letter. And that's what this is. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but so... That is the perfect antidote to, and my, my, even my doctor growing up, he would, you know, my general practitioner who was like 90, I'd go in with a cold and he'd go, Iris, are you writing? And I'd be, no, I'm not. And he's like, that's why you're sick. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah. All right. Thank you, Henry Mancini. Thank you, Henry Mancini for all the neon boulevards and all the city streets of all the cities and the jazz and the poetry of the downtowns and the uptowns. For Sunset Boulevard in the rain, Hollywood Boulevard at twilight, and Wilshire Boulevard at dawn. For the Pacific Coast Highway, Union Station, and the view from Mulholland Drive, both sides, the San Fernando Valley and Los Angeles. For jazz gliding its way down translucent highways at one in the morning through the steam of car headlights in the pouring rain. For making me feel clean when I was dirty, and for the fantasy that my life was somehow better than it was. And for the romance when there wasn't any. For crazy but surprisingly smooth hungover mornings when an all-nighter should have been painful. Thank you for the lengthy warm Santa Ana summer afternoons, overlooking a city from a dingy apartment with only the view and you to save me. Thank you, Henry Mancini, for those ephemeral evenings draped across Hollywood at midnight like a ghost town. Timeless, glamorous, and still. For the exquisite and the calm, and for the clean and regal lift of elegance onto a stairway of stars, leading to a luxurious and illustrious world where nothing earthly can touch me. Thank you. So beautiful. Thank you. I love that. Thank you. Out of great pain, right? Comes. That's. I think that's kind of the... 
I mean, it doesn't have to be. Obviously, I, I create a lot just because I'm inspired. But I believe also it it's healing. It has real healing powers. Yeah. Create creativity. Instead of just surviving, you know, these great whatever, these obstacles, these hard times or these life lessons, to not just survive, but to thrive through them. To create, you know, like have them and be better for them, like learn from them and do something, you know, that's forever, something good. Right. Yeah. Love that. When did you start Punk Hostage Press? What mm. gave you the idea to start publishing other writers and um, not have to worry about a place where you could have your own voice out there? Thank you for asking. Okay. So my partner who, uh, uh, Razor, a Razor, Andrew Martin's honor. He, um, he's kind of like a brother, like an un- We're like we're in Hollywood all at the same time, you know. Our lives just paralleled. Like when I was living at Disgraceland, he was living in the Garden Courts Apartments, um, which was an old like building on Hollywood Boulevard that became, you know, a crazy crash pad for, you know, homeless punkers. We have in two thousand six. We uh, our our friend Bucky Sinister. Andrew was moving here from San Francisco. He's like, you've got to hook up with Iris and Pleasant and, and S.A. Griffin, you know, because Razor's a, a phenomenal writer. <laughs> and there's a great story behind. I mean, we'd already met, but we didn't know. I'll get to that in a second. But so we met, like we met at Canners and it just, there was this instant chemistry just as friends, like creative friends, yeah. instant chemistry. He was writing this book, Better Than a Gun and a Knife Fight. And, he wanted me to edit it. And I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I love your writing. And I was writing, I was working on the Daughters of Bastards. Didn't know what I was going to do with it. And he, so, but he knew what he wanted to do with his. And I don't know if you're familiar with Luis Rodriguez. He's, Luis is incredible. He, he's written so many books. He's a very talented writer. He um, talk about thriving through, you know, huge life obstacles. I think he's also from Bukwema, which is where I'm from. And he's created uh, Tia Chicha Press. And there's like a, there's a cultural center that's, that was in Bukwema and now it's in um, Silmar. And, you know, he's, you know, gone to jail. He's, you know, was in gangs and he, he survived and he helps other guys transition out of jail now. And Luis was the poet laureate. And I think in 2017 of Los Angeles, he was, nominated the poet laureate like this is someone who's taken their lives obstacles and turned it into something so beautiful and he helps guys now transition out of jail and so anyway he had tia chucha and razor wanted to you know they'd been talking and so he about him publishing razor and um i was going to edit so we drove out there one day to meet with Luis, and he was just like this is a great book i totally want to publish it but it isn't going to be for three years and you guys were like, like, how is that? You know, I wasn't, I didn't know anything about publishing. So, and neither one of us did. And we we're just like, whoa, like, it felt like, is he blowing us off? You know, like, we just didn't know. And, um, but what he said is, he goes, you guys should just start your own publishing company and do it yourselves. And like, you might as well just said to me, you might as well just re Iris, can you just recreate the Empire State, State Building and build it by hand yourself? Because it's like, what is he talking about? And so Razor and I had a reading that night. We went, Nate at Michelli's on Hollywood Boulevard, off Hollywood Boulevard. 
And then we did our reading. It was beyond Baroque and maybe library girl, but, um, and then he went back, he was living in Richmond, you know, up in by South, in Oakland, he was in Richmond. And I was on my porch and we were just texting back and forth. And he goes, you know, it's about the event. And he goes, so do you want to start a publishing company? And I was like, okay. Like I didn't, it wasn't like I thought about it or thought we would or thought we wouldn't. I just was like, okay, just in the moment. He goes, what should we call it? And I go, how about Punk Hostage? Because that was my my custom URL on MySpace, Punk Hostage. <laughs> like cool. I just, yeah, I was just, I was just goofing around and he goes, yes. And so we set out to do his book and my book, just those two books. And here we are more than 40 books later. That's yeah. So great. Congratulations. Thank you. It's 10 years we just celebrated. And it's just turned into something so beautiful that I love so much. And you, because it's really building a community, you know, of which is what I was doing when I was a kid. Yeah. Like in the sixth grade, I started my first band. It was called the Mod Five. Like, you know, like with other girls, you know, other girls in school that were my, my friends, my best friends. And it's just, and that, like the Ringling Sisters, it happened so organically. So did Punk Hostage. And I feel like these things happen organically because they come out of love, right? Yeah. Okay, so let me just tell you, let me backtrack a little. So, like I said, you know, Van Halen was like the house band at the Rock Corporation. And that's kind of where I started my friendship with Dave Lee Roth. And then Dave Lee became the silent owner in this these bars and these after hours bars called the Zero zero and then they'd have new locations zero one you know whatever and he was the silent owner of you know after van halen made it he became the silent owner so when they played the us van halen played the us festival the owner of um the zero zero john pokna he said look um van halen is playing the us festival do you want to go dave lee kind of has a crush on you and i was like He's and I was like, I'm not into metal guys. I like, you know, punk, but I'll totally <laughs> go. Like, and Top Jimmy was going, and so it was me and John Pokna and Top me and and his girlfriend and me and Top Jimmy, and Top Jimmy was really close with Dave Lee. Like, if you look at, you know, the discography of Van Halen, there's a song that he wrote called Top Jimmy. You know, it's a Van Halen song. So I think it was 1982. We drive out to the US Festival and. You know, we're in this old, like, 40s convertible Oldsmobile, and we're driving through the crowds, you know, to the back VIP. And it's like we were aliens, you know, because it was all metal people, and we were, you know, not metal. So we get to their backstage area, and it was great. It was, like, all these buffet tables, like, all these tables and this just endless buffet of anything you want and an open bar with anything you want. And a DJ. And I was like, everyone was sort of backstage, like hanging out with Van Halen, doing whatever, kissing Dave's ring, whatever. And I was out there by myself, just me and the DJ. And I kept saying to the DJ, because I didn't care about that. And <laughs> I just wanted, you know, just to, you know, have fun and be there. And um, so I kept making the DJ play Little Red Corvette over and over and over. But we had the place ourselves. And so we were laughing and eating and drinking and just, and he's, I think he probably played it, played it about 20 times. Like he didn't care. No one else was there. It was just, you know, and at one point 
John came out and he said, Dave wants to see you. So I just go back and I go back and say hi. And then I go back out, you know, to drink and eat and hear red, you know, dance to red Corvette again. So I was telling Razor the story, you know, my, my partner. And he looks at me and he goes, that was you. He was the DJ. Oh, great. Swear to God. Isn't that wild? That's great. Talk about magic, you know, and like synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah. Our paths just kept doing this. Was, how long was that between when you uh, met or encountered? 20 years. Well, no, 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 not him. Prince. Oh, oh. <laughs> because, oh Raspberry Beret. <laughs> Did you channel him by playing it 20 times that night? That then you had the experience. Well, it's funny it. because he did he I we I was in his video, like Janet Cunningham used to have this casting company called Cash. And it was she would just cast all of us punks because no one else, no one else in the industry wanted to touch us. But you know, right. it was they needed they always needed punkers in a club scene, and that was us. And so um she cast us all in um the uh raspberry beret princess raspberry beret and there was like it was huge this huge dance floor with all of us and they were getting us to do these choreographed moves and then there was like five pillars and they had me on a pillar they had my friend maggie on a pillar and i don't know who was on but me and mag our pillars were right next kind of next to each other and then everyone was down below us and <laughs> i totally in a lucy i love lucy kind of way threw off the dance moves like i was doing it wrong <laughs> and me and my me and my boyfriend at the time mark rude he was him he was in front of me it was just great to see all these punkers do these dance these choreographed dance moves none of us were dancers and you know everyone was so rebellious and yet there they were doing these dancers it was hysterical and so we'd see it like it would show up on mtv or whatever and we'd always go there i am throwing it off like throwing it <laughs> off and they were like i'm like i can't believe they haven't caught that like and then eventually what they did is they covered it, my part with animation. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they finally caught it. Yeah. Yeah. So amazing. That was, that was my experience. And I was sitting there like on a break, like smoking a cigarette and I was sort of looking down and all of a sudden I see like these white, like Cuban heel boots. They were blue sky with white clouds on them. And then I look and I see the pants match the boots. And then I look straight ahead and I see nothing. And then I look down and it's Prince. And we were told not to look in his eyes. He didn't like us looking in his eyes. Like, I get it, I guess. I don't know. He didn't want, he didn't want anyone making eye contact. They were like, don't make eye contact. And I accidentally made eye contact with him and I looked away, but he was tinier than me. Yeah. And I'm like 5'2". Well, I was in heels, so probably 5'6 or something like that. But that was, so that was 82, that was 86. So four years later. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that's so that's kind of the story the story of Punk Cossage Press. And you know, Razor took a break in fifteen, but you know, he started a family and but we still talk all the time. He you know, and I I don't make decisions um and like I always run stuff by him and he's you know, we're still super close and it's I'm about to publish his daughter, who's an amazing writer, and that's a great story too, because when she was born, he was like seventeen and the baby was taken away from him and the mom that she was adopted. And he always wondered where she was. And then she found him, his daughter. Yeah. And she was like in her thirties. This was like about, I want to say five years ago. And 
they've and of course she's a writer and her writing is very similar to his like she's such a great writer so um we just put out his book Puro Purismo and she wrote the introduction which is just a beautiful forward and now he's going to do the forward to her book Ophelia Rising so I mean there's stuff like that that, w- that we get to do that is just so powerful and amazing you know and we're going to do your book which I can't wait you know <laughs> yeah. so excited Steve yeah yeah so there's a and there's a lot coming up this year like Pleasant's book Rock and Roll Witch uh Jack Grisham's Pulse of the World, Patrick O'Neill's Anarchy at the Circle K, um, William S. Hayes's uh, King of the Road, Dan Denton's The Dead and the Desperate. Um, um, I'm hopefully going to finish my Tropicana book because I've been doing an oral history on the Tropicana model. Some people say, oh, I have writer's block. Or, I'm like, really? I don't. I just have a need for more time to do them all. It's a wealth of, of stuff. Like, which is beautiful, you know, to know that it's that there's all these things that we want to do passionately and we, we don't want for more ideas, which is great. Like it's not, that is not an issue. Time is, and it's also, and this is my thing, time versus vision versus finance. Right. And how to juggle all three. Yeah. And how to make, like especially vision versus finance, how to make that work. Because, yeah, I mean, maybe now not so much because we could do all this stuff on our own, which is what I love about the publishing company. It's like, I I have an idea and I could just do it, you know? There's nothing. And I know you know that just because you've been doing the books. It's just like, and you could do that with film. It's like, okay, I want to, like, you know how to do it. You know what you need. And you can you can do it. Like it's that's how I feel about the publishing company. Like any book I want to do, it's like I just need to, you know, put it together. Right. I don't I don't need anyone else, which is such a great feeling. I mean, I love the relationships, the creative relationships, but I don't I could do I could completely do it all by myself now. Yeah, that's the that's the beautiful thing of of just the freedom of not having to ask permission. Yeah. It's amazing. It's an amazing freedom. And of course, it's always good to have people to bounce stuff off of, right? But at this point, being able to sit down and create a whole book, that is a huge freedom and empowerment. Mm -hmm. You know, I love it. Publisher, poet, muse, Iris Berry. You can get All That Shines under the Hollywood sign by Iris Berry anywhere books are sold. Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe. And when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically. And you'll have free access to all our past shows. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our original theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. If you have a question about filmmaking you'd like me to answer on the podcast, send me an email using the contact form on the website. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, 
be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook, wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going. <laughs>